Hey, this is Jim, and I am coming to you now from my apartment in San Francisco. I haven't uh, haven't done one of these in, well, it's been a couple weeks now. I haven't published any in longer. I got a couple in the backlog I haven't published, but yeah, I think it's high time I did one of these things. I've been I've been busy. I've been offline doing stuff. Uh, it's good. Life is happening. Uh, yeah, yeah. How's, uh, how's your quarantine going? Um, I'm actually feeling pretty good. Felt good the last, uh, couple of days in particular. Um, <clears throat> I, like most people, I'm just sort of stuck at home. And I've been watching for the last couple months as, um, all of these things are just happening in the world. Seems like. This uh, country is preparing to slowly digest itself, uh, is what it looked like out there. And of course, I always have to, I have to kind of descend into whatever's going on, the emotionality of it, sort of experience it, and then eventually I just sort of get over it. You know, I am not as passionate as uh, some people are, but I do have to go through it, I think. And so I've, I've definitely, um, yeah, I've been processing some stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I do remember talking in, I think it was late April on this thing. And I was like, how long exactly are we going to be able to go before this whole thing just spills over? How long do we just like stay pent up in our homes watching our leaders just not handled the situation correctly at all uh, before the, the the frustration, um, the emotion just sort of bubbles over and we start going nuts. Um, and I think we, we uh, saw that uh, it was a couple months ago, um, May 25th uh, in Minneapolis, George Floyd. Um, and that's all going on right now. So I've been watching uh, the riots. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I... The thing is, it's sort of... I don't know. Like, I have to start by saying, of course, that I... I think that maybe tearing down the Confederate monuments, pulling those out of our... That's probably been a long time coming, and that's not something I really, if if that's going on, if there's some crazy mob pulling down a statue of Robert E. Lee, or they want to rename some elementary school, like Robert E. Lee, I know what all that stands for. It doesn't make sense. I've never understood it. Like, I remember, I'm from Detroit, or the Detroit area, more specifically, so it's not like... It's not like you saw it in your face when I, when I was growing up. Um, but you go, you go down to Ohio, for example, and you'd hear people say some stuff like throwing around words. Uh, and you'd be like, you know, I don't know how you're getting away with that. Could you come up to Michigan? At least come up to the part of Michigan where I'm from and you start throwing those things around. You're going to get yourself killed if you're a white guy, you know? <laughs> um, 
so yeah, I mean, there, there's, yeah, where I grew up, there, there's, there's plenty of this going on. Like, I, I grew up three miles outside of Detroit proper um, until I was ten, and then when I was in elementary school, um, I, I would, I don't remember exactly, but I would guess that close to half of my classmates were black, the other half were white, and there was some other like Indian. Uh, there was at least one Indian kid I remember. I actually don't remember if there was any Asians in my, were there any? Yeah, I don't know. Where I moved when I, after I was 10, like where I went to middle school and high school, there was definitely plenty of Asians, and almost no black people. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, so this is, <clears throat> this is something I'm, something I'm somewhat familiar with. Like when I was in elementary school in Southfield, Michigan, um, like once a year, or not once a year, at least, at least that we'd we'd have to go down to the cafeteria, all of us, the entire school, or and uh, watch a video about um, you know, uh, designed to sort of make us aware that uh, racism is a thing in the adult world, and it's not something we want to continue to be a thing. So be sensitive to it. Realize that your fellow human beings are human beings, and let's not make a thing out of their skin color ever. And uh, yeah, I mean that that <clears throat> that has been part of me since a very very young age. I honestly don't know. I think when something gets into you that routinely, um, when you're that young, it probably sticks with you and makes an impression in a way that you don't even know, are not aware of. Um, so that's always been something. Um, but anyway, yeah, so all this to say, like, it was really, really weird like, going down to Ohio and hearing that sort of thing or going to other places in the country or even within my own state. And you would see people with, like, the Confederate flag on their cars. I remember the first time I saw that and I pointed, I pointed at it and turned to the person next to me and said, what is that? That's the Confederate flag, right? What is that supposed to represent? What is that supposed to mean? Does that mean what I think it means? And they're like, if, if you if you do mean, does it mean, you know, the South wants to have won the Civil War? Then yes. And I was like, how exactly could you get away with displaying that anywhere in this country? And why would anybody want to display that? Like, why would that be a thing you are proud of? The idea of the South, like, should have won the Civil War. And shouldn't have had to secede from the union, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I've been absolutely flabbergasted me that there's a, there's a, a faction of people out there who would celebrate that still. It's been so long. Like, I, if, yeah, this was, this was in like, what, 1990s, 2000? If it was the 1890s, okay, I get it. Not enough time has passed. But it's, there's been civil rights, There's been a whole, like, 150 years of stuff that has happened since then. What is going through people's heads? If you're flying the Confederate flag, if you're, like, celebrating the Confederacy, if those are your heroes, what, really, what does it mean to you? 
And the thing is, I don't actually know. Like, I've asked some people and they say, oh, yeah, they, they just believe that they should still be allowed to have slaves. They should believe they believe that that should have never come to an end. I don't actually know if that's the case. Like, if you're running, if you're flying the Confederate flag, is that really what you, um, really what you stand for? Is that what that symbol means to you? Is that all that means? Does it mean that at all? I don't get it. There's only one place that racism ever ends, and it's not anywhere good. It is nowhere good. It leads to places of hate. It leads to violence. It leads to suffering. It leads to death, unnecessarily. There's no reason for it. No justification whatsoever. None. And honestly, if the Confederate flag is meant to stand for something else, like in addition to that, or even instead of that, then I think you might want to get a, get another symbol. Because that's always going, that baggage is always going to go along with that. So the thing is, I, I, I understand. Um, but of course, I, I took exception to the fact that I'm listening to NPR and I hear, I hear people, um, are tearing down statues of like Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, George Washington, like going after the founders of the country and saying, yeah, they were slave owners and reducing their identities to that and saying, because of that, we have to kind of tear down monuments made to them. And I remember hearing them thinking, come on, like this is, are you really going to go that far? To me, that's going a little bit too far. Um, and I can understand it. It's, it's, it's probably something that is, it's a sensitivity for some people. Honestly, the only, I've only discussed this with one person. I mentioned that I didn't like the whole, like Thomas Jefferson happens to be a personal hero of mine because he, uh, among other things, established secular government. Uh, he believed in people. He believed in the ability of the people to govern themselves. Um, it was, it was him versus like, uh, the, the Federalists who wanted to establish something more like, like strong central government. Uh, Jefferson wanted to leave more power in the hands of the people. Um, and he wanted to make sure that, uh, American government was secular. Like the United States was set up without the wall between church and state. And that's something I don't think people fully appreciate, uh, just how rare that is. Um, it was a very radical concept at the time, and it's rare even today. And he was a, definitely a polymath, definitely a very, very bright guy. Um, But I remember, I, so I mentioned this. I was like, I have some reservations about, you know, we're tearing down, you know, statues of Thomas Jefferson or George Washington because they own slaves, um, basically reducing their identities to that. And um, her response to me was, you know, um, we we need heroes that are, um, 
not controversial. Like we need heroes that are can be everybody's heroes, that have no controversy to them whatsoever. You know, we deserve as this country to like remove the heroes that like our founders might be and replace them with icons that uh, don't have the emotional baggage for anyone that don't have um, controversy around them. And I thought about it and I was like, okay, who exactly could be a hero that is without any controversy? Who can we all look up to? And I couldn't think of anyone. Uh, the one person I thought of was Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I thought of two exceptions to him right off the bat. One, he was a Christian. And I don't hate Christians, but the thing is, Christianity is Christianity and its scripture was used for hundreds of years in order to justify slavery and the institution of slavery and, and the slave trade. Um, and I think we've forgotten that uh, just because as of late, the abolitionists have uh, been using that to kind of rally people around a nonviolent means of protesting um, the institution of slavery. In the last century or so, that is that has happened. Um, but still, Christianity does have that blood on its hands. And the good Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a doctor of that. He went to seminary. Uh, the second thing is that he was a philanderer. Um, this is well known uh, because, uh, well, the, the federal government, I think it was, it was Hoover, um, was collecting intelligence on major civil rights leaders so as to figure out how to co-opt them, you know, how to weaken their ability to this is how you know that at the time there was institutional racism going on. At the very least, there was racism at the highest levels of government because we were trying to discredit um, civil rights activists, the high-profile ones, by tapping their phones and seeing what conversations were going on. This is how we learned that this is how we know Martin Luther King was fooling around on his wife. So again, a statute of Martin Luther King, it, it could one day become controversial. I think even now it, it could be regarded as controversial. Just for sake of argument, I don't think I would reduce uh, Martin Luther King's identity to he was a philanderer and he was a an advocate of a religion that was used for a very long time to justify slavery. I wouldn't reduce reduce his identity to that, but that's kind of my point. I wouldn't reduce the identity of our founding fathers to they owned slaves. I don't know who you can find that's an angel. Like the saints are not saints when you really dig into their history. So this is this is what I'm confused about. Uh, but anyway, so of course, I remember formulating that argument and saying like, I raised that objection. Like I don't like the fact that we're trying to tear down monuments to our founding fathers. And of course, a couple of days later, like Trump is on the news saying, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's basically making the exact point I am. He's lumping in the Confederate monuments. Um, you know, he's saying like, this is, this is all of our history and we should, um, we should preserve it. Um, 
and these these looters and rioters they're um just lawless mob and they're yeah i mean that's yeah why is it that why is it that donald trump is like making the argument i'm making but he's making it worse and i don't know the thing is it's I don't know. Like the thing is, I, I even that it's just a value judgment. Like I say to myself, I would say, okay, fine, tear down the Confederate monuments, but leave up the monuments to the founding fathers. Some people are saying, don't tear any of them down, because they're our history. Some people say, tear them all down. And I don't know who's exactly right here. I don't know what to what extent should we rely on, on the due process. You know, have petitions circulate to take certain ones down who's signing the petition like who who's is that even the, the right who makes the decision like if you're going to like say anything about this it's basically a value judgment and what confuses me is that the value judgment of a, of a mob right now of people that are just going around tearing things down um they're the ones who are getting their way it's basically it's just a very it seems like a show of might makes right like, here's what we think is going to happen. We're just going to do it, you know, and damn the consequences. Like, it doesn't matter who disagrees. We think we're right. So we're going to go out. And we're going to uh, tear these things down. What exactly gives them the right to do that? Uh, what makes them more correct than the people who don't want that to happen? And I wonder what kind of example that is uh, setting for um, this is what I wondered. I wondered what, what kind of example is that setting for our kids? You know, young people today, just they're everyone's sitting at home watching what's going on on TV. People are watching just these, these mobs go out and tear things down and break stuff. And like, okay. Is that what, what, uh, kids are to learn now? That is to say like, oh, well, if you don't like the way something is being done, just go out and tear it down. Is that really a good example to set for, you know, kids? I worried about that for a while, but then I realized that's kind of always happened. There's always, it seems like every every few years there's race riots somewhere. Um, and I, I, would, I would not argue that that shouldn't be happening because I think that is definitely a response to something, something very real. Um, it's a backlash against something that deserves a backlash. And, and so I, yeah, I, it's not like it's going to make our kids lawless, you know, they're not going to make our kids like, they're not going to grow up and think, okay, now we live in a Mad Max world. I'm just going to go do whatever I want. Like, no, like, uh, these things happen, you know, there were race riots in 1967. You know, I grew up in a city where those had happened. I was aware of them. I saw but when I was 10 years old, uh, Rodney King, Los Angeles, didn't turn me into a rioter. I don't think it turned, uh, I don't think it turned a generation of us into rioters. So, you know, it's just, these things happen. And it probably just is a matter of balance. I, uh, I mean, I think this was a long time coming. We've had close to four years of Trump. And Trump has been 
at best, at best ambiguous on the whole, um, white supremacist constituent to his base. And it's, it's not clear to me how big that constituent is, um, how pervasive it is. And I don't think all the people who are white nationalists are necessarily Trump supporters. Probably most of them are. They tend to swing conservative. But that's that's definitely been it's definitely been an element that has been it's gotten a lot of focus in the media. Whether or not it it has deserved that much attention or that much focus, uh, that I don't know. But it's it's been it's been kind of in our faces for a while now. And so I think it was inevitable that at some point the other side of it was going to step up and say, you know what, we're going to take a stand against this. We need to do something to, to basically show the world we're not going to tolerate um, racism. And I do wonder about how we define all of these things. For, for instance, um, what I'm hearing are cries of systemic racism or institutionalized racism. And I wonder how much of that there actually is. And I, I want to break down what, what it is I mean by that. Um, I do believe that racism exists. All right. Um, of course I do. And I think that people in positions of power uh will, not always, but I think that, that you, you can find cases where people in, in power will um, abuse their power in a way that is, can be demonstrated to be racist. If you go digging, you can find examples like that, I am sure. Um, yeah, like I said, I grew up in Detroit. So... Uh, if you look at the history of Detroit after World War II, what you will see is that essentially that's how Detroit became the city that it is today, is that during World War II, we needed labor in order to work in the factories in Detroit. You know, Detroit was always producing automobiles. When the war broke out, it was like, okay, we're going to convert all these factories to making uh, munitions, weaponry for the war effort. And we needed labor to work in the factories. So a lot of people uh, moved from a lot of different places, including the South, to to work in the factories. And a lot of those people were black. And when the war was over, um, all of a sudden you had this, uh, where you had kind of suspended well, we didn't suspend racism, but we kind of like moved some things around to make sure that this this could all be done. But once the war was over, it was like we had all these black people living in Detroit and all these white people living in Detroit. And it wasn't like racism was suddenly gone. It wasn't like Jim Crow suddenly wasn't a thing. Or that whites weren't suddenly creeped out by blacks or, you know, think less of them. So still Jim Crow era. And so... What you have is, I mean, for one thing, um, a lot of stuff happened, but for one thing, um, housing was a massive problem. 
So this is before the Fair Housing Act of, I want to say 1968, is that when it was passed? Um, so landlords could discriminate uh, based on the color of someone's skin. And so people would get kicked out of their houses. Um, I mean, blacks basically had nowhere to live. They would get kicked out. They wouldn't be able to get a new, new place to live. Um, when we built the uh, interstates, if you look at the interstates that run through the city of Detroit, they seem like they just kind of branch around and snake around in wild directions like without, um, without any rhyme or reason. Uh, it was actually done strategically. It was like, so if we're going to have to like tear down some housing to put in an interstate, um, let's make sure that it, uh, let's try and minimize how much white neighborhoods are affected by this. So they basically tore down housing that was uh, where black people lived. Um, so this is, and I mean, even after, even after the, uh, uh, Brown v. Board. I mean, this is this is just this is what you see happen. Like the laws get passed that protect against racial discrimination, and the people who are in power, uh, when they're white, um, try and find ways around laws. So when I think of institutionalized racism, when I think of systemic racism, I think that I think about. Um, I think about laws, like legislation not being able to be passed um, that will guarantee racial equality. I think about cases where there are civil matters, there's discrimination, and a uh, say a black person doesn't have um, the recourse to seek a remedy for that because they're black, but a white person would in the same situation. Um, I don't know how much of that is prevalent. I think that's far less prevalent now. I think we've closed a lot of those gaps and I think we've given a lot of opportunity to uh, black people. But what I do think is that there is maybe a lot of racism, a lot of discriminatory acts, let's say, let's say prejudicial acts um, that take place at the level of institutions by in individuals who have racial biases or racial prejudices or who may be outright racists. I feel like that needs another name. Um, but I'm, I'm sure you can find cases where that is clearly, that it's clearly going on. Don't know how prevalent they are these days. Probably more prevalent than I would like to admit. And of course, there's, there's the question of, um, well, this this gets gets pretty, this gets pretty. Um, I don't know. That, anyway, that's my stand on it. I definitely don't deny it. But I, I, what I kind of wonder is, my concern has been with the rioters. First of all, the, the rioting and the looting and the protesting we've seen. And first of all, those are not all the same thing. But that's the point. There have been a lot of peaceful protests that are protesting. Um, police brutality. Uh, but that hasn't been the whole of it. I mean, there, there have been other elements to it that just seem to be, like I said, just just kind of looting. 
there's been a lot of lawlessness and it seems to be centered around the emotions associated with what happened with George Floyd. Um, but it's not peaceful protesting. Uh, what I see is a lot of emotional reactions. I see a lot of people on the street who are just lashing out at what they can see and they may not be, I don't know. The thing is, I, like I said, I kind of was worried about this. I kind of looked at what was going on and thought, are we, are we just driving ourselves crazy? Is this going to end anywhere good? Can it end anywhere good? I, I kind of think now that it will. Like, yes, the pot boils over. You know, it's going to happen sometimes, but it doesn't mean you've destroyed what you're trying to cook. And I feel like that's the case right now. There, there is, there's a lot of pent up energy psychically just spilling up and um, what I hope what I hope is that what I'm seeing even though it looks like it might be kind of unruly and maybe doesn't really have a leader doesn't seem to have a singular purpose or a singular end that it's trying to attain I hope that some I hope it ends up being effective and bringing about positive change somehow I hope that's the case and I, I'm sure that it will and I've already seen things that I, I would consider wins. Um, Mississippi's had a part of, part of the Mississippi flag used to have the Confederate flag that was removed in the last couple of months. I think that's a massive, massive win. I think that's, that's the kind of thing you want to see change. When, when there's actual policy, uh, changes made, when the court of public opinion gets this angry about something like racism. And so, okay, let's start examining what's wrong with our institutions and changing them. Uh, that's great. I think that a lot of this has been a long time coming. But of course, there were elements of it, like what happened in Seattle, where there seemed to be uh, factions of... People are just being opportunistic. So there's race riots going on. People who feel anarchi anarchistic, they don't like the government for other reasons. So just sort of jumped on the bandwagon and started protesting, you know, all government authority and not just corrupt government authority. That's, I think that the part of it that sort of has worried me has been the part of it that looks like that. Um, because that's, yeah, that looks like trouble to me. Not least of all because it's an election year and, uh, the thing is, is that no, not everybody on the Republican side is a white nationalist. I would say not even close. Not all Republicans are racist. Um, but it's very, very easy for people to look at what's on the extremes. They look at people who are actually part of the honest to God alt-right and to say that represents Republicanism and to go the other way. Therefore, I'm going, I'm going to be a liberal. What would worried me, what was really concerning me is that, um, people would look at the lawlessness that they were seeing on their televisions and say, okay, this is associated with the left. This is leftist ideology, this sort of lashing out at, you know, institutionalized racism, even in cases where the people who were protesting were clearly irrational. You'd see like white people yelling at black cops for being racist. 
let's see videos of this sort of thing. And it's like, do you understand the contradiction in what you're saying? And it just doesn't seem like you actually are standing for anything that makes sense. So what I'm worried about is the, the opposite effect. People seeing this craziness, um, this lawlessness, which seems to be on the left and people going the other way. People who are like on the fence, centrist, undecided. And this might be uh, Trump's springboard to um, winning re-election this year. I actually don't think that's going to happen either. For a while, I worried about that. Like, I, it was a very real concern of mine. Um, I yeah, I'm not not super worried about that. I think if if Trump wins, it'll be for different reasons. It won't be because uh, there were some um, opportunists just sort of bandwagging onto the uh, or piggybacking onto the the, the race riots. That were going on, even though they, they're just they're just angry, you know. Um, yeah. Honestly, I don't remember if I made this criticism publicly, but I've I've I have been watching Joe Biden, and I'm kind of disappointed by what I was disappointed by what Joe Biden is doing or what he what he's not doing. Um. Because right now it does seem like we need a leader. Yeah, we need somebody to get up there and to say, somebody who, who can not foment division, which something it seems to be something that Trump is very, very happy to do. Um, he doesn't seem like he, whenever he has the opportunity to speak in public about anything, it is right and left and just sort of like driving a wedge in between the two as best he can. Um, and the thing is, I think that was a very, very effective tactic. I think the, the more he did that, I think the, he kept driving the wedge at the right angle, but as he got down and down and it, he managed to like carve out a big enough constituency of people in this country that he managed to get himself, um, get himself elected. And I think he's trying to do that now. He's aware that it's an election year, but right now we don't need division. Like right now, the, the national psyche does not does not need that at all. It needs the opposite. And I, I've I've said in the past I'm somewhat disappointed that Joe Biden is not seizing upon the, this opportunity. He's not making more public appearances um, as the Democratic nominee for um, the presidential election this year. Um, and, and trying to bring us together. He's not ex demonstrating a whole lot of leadership. But I was thinking about this this morning, and I realized maybe, maybe what little I've seen from him, which just seems to be the normal muckraking uh, that uh, you see from people. He's just talking about how terrible Trump is. Um, like the fact that he just seems to be setting himself up as the guy who is not Donald Trump. So if you don't like Donald Trump, vote for me. That seems to be his message so far. It seems to be all his message really is reduced to. And I was like, that seems like a missed opportunity. It seems like he could be doing more. He could be saying more. He could be doing more to unite us, uh, to bring people together and to, 
to heal some of the divisions that we have. But I was thinking about it this morning and I thought maybe, just maybe, he's trying to He's trying to reduce the surface area that Donald Trump has to attack when the debates happen later this fall. Um, if he kind of just shrinks down, you know, and doesn't make himself a massive target, if he doesn't expand for a whole lot ideologically, then there's less, there's less that can be attacked. There might be some strategy to it. Besides, everybody's an armchair politician. Everybody looks at what's going on and they say, well, that's just so-and-so is doing something wrong. They just don't know. Honestly, I'm not a politician. I died, didn't. I never studied political science. I've read some like political philosophy. I've read some history. I know some things, but I don't know everything. I'd have to guess there's probably some people at the Democratic National convention that uh, know more than I do about what the best strategy is right now. Maybe. I hope that's true. Hopefully they're, hopefully they're on it. Because, um, yeah, as disappointed as I am by that it was Biden and not somebody else, it was more of a visionary, uh, more of a progressive. Uh, I certainly don't want to see Trump continue being president. What I've been reading this week is that Donald Trump, the insiders, the people who are in his inner circle who are talking about this, say that he seems to he seems to talk a lot about how he doesn't like that this pandemic happened to him. He keeps saying, you know, I, there was this great economy in this country that I helped build, you know. It was all going great, and now it's I had I had to shut it down, and now everybody's hurting. It's been uh, it's been astonishing to me. I don't know. The thing is, like I said, I don't know everything about politics, and I know that a lot of what I see is misinformation. Uh, from very early on, I kind of concluded personally, I don't like Donald Trump because I saw. In his first few months, there was an interview with him in the Oval Office, and there was a there was a journalist talking to him. I don't remember what his name was, but he was he was trying to get, he was asking Donald Trump a question, saying like I I want I want to get your side of this story. And Donald Trump was like, Well, you can figure that out. I don't have to comment on that. And the guy said, Well, I I want to hear your take on it because I'm fake news. I want to make sure I get this right. And Donald Trump just sort of said, yeah, yeah, we're done here. And just sort of like walks off and sits down at his desk and just. Uh, it was like the action of a sulky teenager. And that was when he lost me. If there was any part of me that was like kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt, like maybe you know what you're doing. Maybe you're a mature adult. It was seeing that that just made me think, okay, I don't care for you. If that's the way you're going to treat people, even if you were just having a bad day, you could have handled it better than that. Somebody who is 70 years old should have more emotional composure than that. Somebody who's the president should have more emotional composure than that. I lost all respect for him in that moment. I was like, I cannot believe this person is leading our country. 
And the thing is, is that we've all had to sit down and pay attention to what's going on with Donald Trump during the pandemic. And he is a child. I honestly cannot believe that he has chosen to handle things the way that he has. It's stunning to me. Absolutely stunning. That's it's. I don't know how he can make everything about him. Um, when so many people out there are hurting right now, people are dying. None of this has anything to do with you. This was not done to you. And it really is just disheartening to. It's disheartening at best um, to look at what's going on and just say that. He thinks that's acceptable behavior. I can't square that. It's not something I can respect. And of course, I've held off saying much of this because it sounds very ad hominem, you know? Like how good of a politician is he? Um, How well does he run the country? That's really what should matter. It shouldn't matter if he's a, a likable person or not. No, the thing is, he is not likable in a way that also bars him from being an effective leader. That much is very, very clear. As much as you heard people uh, attacking Obama, saying, you know, he, this or that, there's this flaw in his personality, he has this secret agenda, he's, there's all this uh, borderline conspiratorial stuff and attacks on his character. None of that ever looked true to me. Even however much I squinted, I couldn't see it. And in any case, Obama seemed to be doing the best with what he had. He seemed to be running the country just fine. If there was a crisis, he handled it well. And besides, I don't know why I'm hedging all this, because nobody nobody's listening to this anyway. Nobody cares what I think. Um, that's why I'm speaking so openly about all this. What does it matter, you know? I uh, saw something on, I think it was on Instagram, something on social media, some meme. It was like a split panel, like on one half. Um, there's one thing, and the other half is another thing. And I think the header of it was two ways to look at the world. And the first one was like, nobody gives a shit. There's a face of somebody crying. Nobody cares about me. Woe is me, that sort of thing. The other half of it was, Nobody gives a shit. Somebody with a bright smile on their face. I can do whatever I want because nobody is really paying attention. Within reason. I'm not saying that you go out and, you know, I don't know, punch a bunch of people. But I mean, really, you can go, you can go actualize yourself. You can go live your life, do whatever you want. And really, nobody's, nobody's paying attention to you. You're free. You know, you're probably freer than you think, you know, so make use of it. Yeah, me, me, myself, I've been trying to think about, I do have a lot to express. I do have a blog, which I occasionally write on, which no one reads. And I have this podcast thing, which I occasionally come on and record something. And I'm, I don't think anyone listens to it ever. Uh, I've tried to think about, 
what it is I could do that would actually reach an audience. I don't know what audience that ought to be. I know it's, I don't want that to be, I don't want to be a software person. It's what I do for a living. But I, I don't want that to be like, in my own time, I'm like writing books, you know, making software tutorials. Um, I don't think I care that much. I don't think I, there was a time when I was really, really excited about like you could, okay, you could go into a community of disadvantaged people economically, teach them how to to program, and that's doing some good in the world. I no longer think that. Um, actually, in terms of politics, there is, there's a lot I've been saying on here about my misgivings with living in the Bay Area, about working in technology, how I don't like the, I don't like the impact that it's having on this country, blah, blah, blah. I've talked a lot about it, but some of that is cultural, some of that is social, some of that is ethical, but I think in large part what I'm really, what I really take exception to is the effect that Silicon Valley and the Bay Area, like Bay Area tech, is having on the entire country economically. And I think this has been going on for years, and this is this was the platform of the um, one of the, the candidates um, who debated in the Democratic debates about a year ago, uh, Andrew Yang, whose mentality about things I really appreciate. Uh, I really I really like his way of looking at things. I like his way of answering questions, his way of looking at the world. Um, I like his way of tackling problems. I think he's... Uh, I, th I think he was, his parents were from Taiwan, so he's of Taiwanese descent. That's right, I said it, China. Uh, but I mean, so right there, I think, I remember looking at him and thinking, okay, this guy is clearly very sharp and knows what he's talking about, but I don't think we're quite there yet. I'd like to believe that we, we could be, that uh, somebody's nationality, not nationality, sorry, somebody's descent, um, their ancestry wouldn't matter, but, uh, yeah, I don't think people understand like what Taiwan is, you know, there was, um, you know, the nationalists and the communists and the, the, the nationalists who were very much on our side, not on our side, at least they opposed the communists, they opposed Mao, got driven back onto the island of Taiwan in, you know, 1949. Um, so, you know, we have a lot, I think, a, a lot more in common with Taiwan than, than, than China. And I don't think people realize that. I think they see somebody who comes from that area of the world and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're part of that whole Tiananmen Square thing, you know, or Mao. I, I would just, I just sort of assume that implicit latent racial biases would prevent him from getting very far in the Democratic uh, primaries, um, which is not that prescient to his statement, unfortunately, but it turns out to be right. He did not get that far. I wish he had, though, because his his whole argument is that automation is displacing a lot of 
a lot of labor in this country. It's kind of like when I was growing up, I went to Henry Ford Museum in Detroit, where you're seeing, you know, you're, you're seeing, uh, it was an exhibit uh, when I was 10, and it was uh, robots that were putting together cars. Like it was an exhibit saying, here's what's going on in the factories. You know, we're, we're automating um, automobile assembly. The factories are not people. They're, they're increasingly being replaced by these machines that can do the same thing instead of a person. And of course, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing has always been going on. You know, somebody used to have to run the elevator. At some point, somebody figured out, oh, yeah, you know, we can just stick some software in there, you know, and uh, the elevator can run itself. You know, but you look at that sort of thing and you say, all right. Um, so somebody used to have to run the elevator and now they don't. Um, they are displaced, but maybe they can get a better job than running an elevator. That doesn't sound like a job I would want if I had a choice in the matter. <clears throat> um, same thing with automobiles. Like you have to hope that automation gets introduced um, slow enough. And it's, you know, it's just in auto factories that people who are displaced by that can find alternative opportunities. Um, like that's the way you can kind of rationalize it. You can kind of say like one, it's not super pervasive. It's localized to automobile manufacturing. And you can kind of say like, all right, if somebody gets laid off from, you know, uh, working in an automobile manufacturing plant, hopefully they have something to fall back on. They have some savings to fall back on. They have some other skill they can lean on. They can go out and get another job somewhere in the economy. Even if that's not true for everyone, you know, there's probably some victims of this whole thing that really they're, they end up in poverty and destitute because they don't have any other skills and they can't, it's, the effect is small enough that you, unfortunately you can, you can ignore it. You can kind of compartmentalize and say, well, it's just a small portion of people. So it's localized to like certain areas of the manufacturing sector and you can kind of rationalize it away. You can kind of like just sort of hope things work out. And things probably probably do, I think, in more cases than, than not. But I don't know. But the displacements like that that are done by automation, by computers, those are becoming much more pervasive. They're they're like I've talked about arriving in Silicon Valley to get a job uh four years ago and just being kind of surprised by how technology is seems to be slowly creeping into everything we're doing. Um, people are using apps to like order food from restaurants and then people are going and picking it up and delivering it to them like DoorDash, for example. Uber and Lyft are like, uh, doing their thing. Uh, you have iPads. So instead of checking in with a receptionist at a couple of jobs I went in for an interview at, there were just iPads in the lobby and I would talk to the human being behind the desk and she would just point without saying a word to the iPad, just, just check in there. There were even a couple buildings where the elevators were controlled by iPads. I had to put in something 
in order to get the elevator to, to be summoned. And there was like this line of people to like use the iPad to summon the elevator for themselves. It was a horrible, I ran into some horrible systems. And I think that's the problem. Like there's, it's, it's kind of that old thing about uh, the person who gets a hammer for Christmas, suddenly everything looks like a nail. Like we, we have like a country of technologists and we're embracing technology increasingly. And so every single problem that we have, it's kind of like, let's just throw technology at it. And that's always been my mentality. I've always been kind of like, yeah, that's what I do. I'm a programmer. I'm going to look around and see where things could be made more effective, more efficient. Um, I have a friend who works for Oakland uh, County Schools, you know, and I remember him talking about this 10 years ago. Uh, he's building computer systems and other people in the, in the Oakland County School System kind of look at him and say, well, wait a minute, what you're building, isn't that, isn't that doing something? Isn't that automating a process that used to have to be done by a human being? And he would say yes. And, you know, they would kind of say, well, doesn't that mean somebody is then out of a job because of a system that you built? Well, sometimes, yeah, that happens. Um, and I think it's, again, when it's on a small enough scale, when it's localized, um, I think you can look at that and say, well, that's just the consequence of technology. This is going to happen. You know, yes, we have the Promethean fire and this is kind of how it burns us. But uh, the thing is, I think it's happening everywhere now. I think it's, it's technology seems to be the thing that so many people are trying to apply that everybody has like a startup they want to build. Um, Everybody wants to program something, wants to build the next big thing. And so a lot of things I think are being disrupted. A lot of things are being displaced. And I, I don't think that's, I think that is leading to very, very serious economic difficulties for a lot of people. I think there are jobs that are going away. These people don't have a place they can go instead. Uh, these people are not in a place where they can be retrained. And it's only going to get worse. The Uber and Lyft example, like right now, those companies are working on a self-driving car, as is Google, and as will as will the um, automobile manufacturers in Detroit. Um, the Ford Motor Company recently bought uh, the Michigan Central Station, the old abandoned train depot in, uh, was it the west side of Detroit? Um, they're going to turn that into their headquarters where they're going to work on a self-driving car. Once this happens, um, yeah, you're not going to need a driver uh, for Uber or Lyft. You just need to, going to need to summon a car. Um, might be a very good time to be a mechanic. Like they've become a mechanic of, 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 of self-driving cars. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't, I mean, can you even be a mechanic on a car these days without knowing how the computer system in a car works? 
I would think that a computer is just such a major component that has its hand in every part of how a car runs. It's not this mechanical thing anymore um, that has an electrical system. It's just a computer system that happens to have a that happens to be a mechanical thing. Everything is just a computer now. Everything is just a smart whatever. Anyway, so that seems to be, I would say over the next 10 or 20 years, what is Silicon Valley going to export uh, to the rest of the country? I would, I would think it would be unemployment is going to be one of its major, um, major factors. And again, I, there is a, there is a practical economic problem here. Um, and I think it's a very, very serious one because if people can't afford to feed themselves, if they can't afford to provide for their families, you're going to end up with, you're going to end up with massive social unrest. The protests we're seeing now, they'll, they'll, they will pale in comparison to what will happen if we keep going down that road. So the economic financial difficulties are real. But I'm trying to look at it differently and say, well, what I mean, what is a job, really? A job is a way of providing for yourself, but it's also where people I think that a job often gives people meaning. It does offer some form of meaning in their lives. It's some sort of structure. You can go be a contributing member of society. You get out and interact with fellow human beings that are not your family or friends and sort of contribute to an effort to do something. And I think that's important for people. I think people need that in their lives. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of where we've gone with that in the last hundred years or so has been more and more impersonal. And I realize this, this all sounds like Karl Marx. Like, it's just, you, um, there's somebody who owns the means of production who isn't you. You're basically working for that person. They're paying you, but they're making some profit off of your labor. You know, you, what you're putting into your work, uh, is being captured by the person who hired you. Um, yeah, that is capitalism. But I think that these systems have gotten more and more. There's a difference, for example, between Okay, there's a person who owns a bookstore, and I go work for him, right? Or her, or her. Get that? I'm progressive. Uh, but I go work for the owner of a bookshop, and the bookshop has maybe five employees, and I'm one of them. Of course, he's paying me, and I am, I am making him money through my labor. Otherwise, why would he pay me? That is, of course, the arrangement, right? But if, if there's any problem at the bookshop, um, there's like five other people, six other people that I can, I have to talk to, you know, like, like if there's a problem, I can bring it up and we can generally reach a resolution, you know, that's, that's very different than going to work somewhere like at Barnes and Noble or Borders, where it's just like, you're just working for some major chain, you know, you between you and the person who actually owns the place, there are maybe seven or eight levels of hierarchy of management. 
and essentially policy, like the way things happen comes from the top down. There are rules instated, rules of conduct, which may not make sense at the local level. You know, um, at that point, it becomes very, very impersonal. It's sort of soul crushing, I think. It's just, what do you really feel like you're doing there? You're just, you are just mechanically going in and being a cog in some system. Right, the humanity has been squeezed out of work in the name of uh, efficiency. And that's what I think, that's what I think worries me because I would much rather work for an independent purveyor, a small independently owned bookshop than I would want to go work at Barnes and Noble or God forbid Amazon. And I'm, when I say Amazon, I don't mean, I mean, I would rather not be a warehouse worker. Um, yeah, whenever I order books online now, I try and order from somebody who looks like they have a a small storefront. It takes longer for me to get my stuff. That's fine. I don't need it immediately. Like I can can do waiting two weeks to get stuff instead of two days. And I always leave positive feedback, you know. In any case, um, but of course, I wonder how big of a problem this actually is, that the, the feeling of your work doesn't have meaning. Is that really a problem for most people? I've started to look at the things that bother me. Like if I come on, if I turn on this recorder and start ranting about something that's bothering me, where I've, where I've ended up going to is after I rant about it for a while, I think, okay, stop for a second and try and figure out how much you're projecting here. Is it that this is a problem or is it that you feel this is a problem and this is why you're ranting about it? Is it a problem just for you? And you're putting it on the rest of the country because that's the way you feel. And I think there's some truth to that. It may be that I don't feel like I, there's a whole lot of meaning in where I have worked. Um, perhaps my entire career. Um, yeah, my first job as an accountant, I mean, it was for a company that was headquartered in Switzerland, I think. And we just, I worked for the branch of the company that had, well, basically we ran all the plants. We did the accounting for all the plants in North America. Um, yeah, very far removed from the headquarters. Uh, the next couple of jobs I had, the first jobs I had in software were small companies at most 12 people at any given time. Um, and those really felt like you were having a, a you know, a, an impact. Like what you're doing for the company, like some, a customer would call up, you would have to get on the phone with the customer and deal with their problem and help them. And that kind of feels meaningful, you know? Uh, the next couple jobs I had, it was... Actually, yeah, I haven't thought about this aspect of it at all. I might want to explore this on my own. Yeah. The last couple jobs I had were very, very large companies, very impersonal. Like, 
whatever you were doing, it just felt like you were part of some massive system. And even if you were enjoying the work, like there was a sense of like, all right, whatever I'm doing is kind of getting lost. It's a, you're just spitting in the, in a, in the, in the rapids, so to speak. Like what impact am I really having? Does this matter? Yeah, maybe that I just want to work for a smaller company, regardless of how they might be affecting um, well, not regardless of how they're affecting the world. There's companies I would not go work for, even if I felt like I was having a major impact because I don't like what they stand for. Hmm. Are we on time here? Just over an hour. I wonder if I'm even going to, I wonder if I should even publish this. I don't know. I keep turning this on and I keep recording these things and I keep saying, yeah, I'm going to publish another podcast. But I always like divulge, I would not divulge. I always devolve into things that are just kind of personal and things I want to explore and talk through. And at the end, I'm like, well, I could probably publish the first 20 minutes of that, but it just sort of became this personal rant. Yeah, really, I'm, the problem with this whole podcast is I'm starting to feel like, I'm starting to feel the pressure more like the blog. Like, if I if I keep doing these things, I want them to be more structured. It can't just be that I opened up my editor and started typing some crap and then just hit publish and now it's out there. I don't want it to be like I just open up my phone, hit record, start talking for a couple hours and then publish it out. You know, I would like it to be something that people might actually want to listen to. Like now that I kind of have a sense of what the workflow is and kind of compared it to like other podcasts that I listen to. Um, yeah, might want to actually like make small little episodes that are actually well put together, actually edited, actually have theme music. And I have a script that I kind of go down instead of just rambling openly. But I don't know if I made it that I probably wouldn't do it anymore. So I probably will not. At the very least, this is what it is. Like, I'll, I'm, I probably will always want to be able to just turn on the microphone and start talking about things that matter to me. Um, if I ever, like, decide to do something that's more well-produced, like, actually worry about sound quality, give it a theme song, have uh, each episode focus on a particular theme, have it be well-researched, you know, quote, sources, uh, I'll probably make it a separate podcast entirely. It'll be something else that doesn't have my name on it. Um, yeah, would have nothing to do with this. Like the episodes on this one are not just going to suddenly seek into uh, well-produced little bites of uh, things. Ah. Uh, yeah, so I've started, I've taken to uh, going down and buying these uh, these cans of fizzy water, again, the, um, whatever, the LaCroix things. That was the first thing I gave up for the, the pandemic. I decided, okay, it's not worth it. You're unemployed. Save the money. Just don't, don't drink 12 cans of bubbly water a day. It's an easy win. Uh... But like last week, 
couple weeks ago, I, um, I don't know, I was having a day where I was really, really dehydrated. I was running on the beach and I was like, you know, that's all I want. I just want to go home, get a 12 pack of those things and just drink as many as I can. And it ended up being a really good day. I came home and did exactly that. And that evening I felt better than I had in a long time. I don't know what it is about these things. Like, I, like, there was a point at which I realized I don't drink just water. Like, if I if I pour filtered water into a glass and drink several glasses of it, that doesn't have the same effect as the bubbly water. I don't know why. I wish I'd never started buying these goddamn things. But <laughs> what I tried doing was taking glasses of water and I would put peppermint oil into it. So I'd put a few drops of peppermint oil into it and then drink that. Give it this cool, refreshing f- flavor to it. Uh, even that didn't do it. Even that was not as refreshing. Like for some reason, just regular tap water, even refrigerated, flavored by me, it's the, it's the damn carbonation. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I've also started to wonder about a siesta. I, I seem to have a pretty regular rhythm. Like over the last week or so, I have... <clears throat> I've tried doing different things. Like I'll wake up and... Whatever it is I do in the morning, you know, however I spend the morning, by mid-afternoon I come home and I just need to, like, pass out. Like, I need to just lie down and get some, some sleep sometime around 1 or 2. Just kind of, like, doze off for an hour, and I wake up feeling refreshed. But if I don't do that, like, for some reason the whole day just feels off. So I wonder if this whole siesta thing, like the, the notion that human beings have like a, like is it diurnal? Like you sleep two separate? Yeah, I, I read a book about the neuroscience of sleep. I think it said something like, like it's not conclusive, but it seems like there's evidence that human beings need to have two separate sleep cycles. They sleep once at night, not quite for eight hours, but you make up for the lack of it in the middle of the afternoon. You're supposed to sleep twice, like, you know, cats sleep uh, at night during the day. Like, there is some evidence, there is some studies that seem to suggest we're, we're like that. You know, we, we get most of our sleep at night, but we need a little bit in the middle of the day just to break things up. I'm all for that now. Like, I'm all for, like, wake up at 5 in the morning early. Actually, yeah, I woke up very, very early today. I woke up, like, at 4.30. That's part of what I've been figuring out. It's like, who am I if I'm not, if I'm just on my own, I'm not conformed to any outside schedule, exactly what the hell do I do? <laughs> How exactly do I change? That seems to be the, something that's happened, that has emerged, is that I do not sleep 
for eight hours a night. I will sleep maybe six hours a night, seven hours a night, but I'll need to get an hour or two of sleep or like doze off in the middle of the day. And that seems to work pretty well. And I mean, actually, the, the whole being attuned to myself, that's actually been one of the major, like, not just my sleep schedules, but just who am I in general? Like, what is it that I want? I do have to call that out. I have to go, I have to call that out because I remember, like, this shelter in place thing happened. And it's, it was so long ago now that it's easy to forget this, but I was where I was when that first happened. There there was all this baggage that I was just like saddled with. I had all these like preconceptions about myself, about what it is I wanted or needed. Things that I didn't like things that I would have refused to do because I, I don't do those things. Like all these, all these ideas, all of that's been laid bare. It's been stripped away. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I mean, getting attuned to myself, just sort of saying like, yeah, there's like, what is it I really want? You know, not what is it I think other people might want me to want, or what do I think I should do? You know, there's ought and is. And if you try to get, uh, if you try to use ought to determine what is, I mean, without understanding what is, then you're, you're going to get the ought wrong. You're going to go the wrong way. You have to understand what is first. And then you can start talking about the shoulds. Yeah. Okay, we're pretty far into this right now, so I can actually start talking about uh, dating apps. Yeah. Okay, so the one I've been on has been, I've been on Bumble for the last, Jesus, how long has it been? Close to three months now? Yeah. And I got on it just because of the pandemic. Like I had sworn off of all the dating apps a couple months before the shelter in place hit because it was just, it was just a waste of time. It's the wrong way to meet people. I have to go out and I have to meet people in the flesh. It's, it's just, it's a waste to think that you can get to know somebody, you know, meet the right person on there. No, no, just, just go live your life. And you'll encounter the people who you have enough in common with that you should be with them. You should have them as friends. And maybe at some point one of them is female and you happen to be attracted to them and they happen to be attracted to you and maybe there are sparks and something develops that becomes lifelong. That's the way life is meant to be lived. It is not meant to be done through a phone But anyway, then this shelter in place hit. So I was like, okay, I might as well spend some of my time locked up, uh, indulging in the fantasy of, I'll see if there's a girl out there for me that I might like to date. Uh-huh. 
Um, but I like Bumble. I'll tell you why I like Bumble more than any other one because it is it is what nature intends. The question about whether or not you reproduce, about whether or not you get together, that has always been the purview of women biologically. I think perfect evidence for that is, uh, you know, sexual assault and rape. No, men do not have the control over this. Women decide. Is this going to happen? Hopefully they do it of sound mind without being too drunk, ideally, but I can't say that's always the case. But, uh, you know, men know this, and that's why they, they I think they, they're bitter about it. And they will just, the less mature, um, pathological people will just say, you know what, I'm not okay with that. I, I, I want to have control over this process, so I'm just going to go for it. But yeah, it's, it's the woman who does the rejecting, you know. We pursue them, they decide, they make the decision. I heard an interesting fact recently that in any species, monogamy is not necessarily a given in the, in the animal kingdom. And, and I, I, I hate those conversations. I hate it when the conversation turns to, well, monogamy is not in the, in, there's not monogamy in the animal kingdom. So why should we have to get married and blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't care. But no, when, when, when a monogamy does emerge in the animal kingdom, I heard this from an evolutionary biologist recently. Um, it always emerges from the females. They're the ones who decide this is the way it's going to be. Um, which makes me wonder, okay, is there something to the institution of marriage? Usually you hear that as being something religious. Religion tends to be, at least in the world that I know, tends to be governed by um, men, the very patriarchal, the Abrahamic religions. Um, what's really going on there? How did that come about? In any case, uh, yeah, so I like Bumble because Bumble seems natural. Bumble seems to be, it's like women make the first move. They decide. And I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. At least if you're going to be on a dating app, I'm not suggesting anybody go on a dating app. But that's that seems to be more in line with what nature intended. That's that's the way it ought to be. Because if it's not that way, it ends up being, I think it ends up being a, probably a healthy portion of dick pics just flying uh, from women or to women from men. Uh Probably there's plenty of that going on in Bumble, too. I, I don't know. It's not not exactly something I talk about with the women I go on dates with. I haven't done a poll, so to speak. But no, I like it. I like I like the... Um, it just feels more natural to me. Um, and besides, if, if, if numbers are any indication, I would say that women tend to feel more comfortable with Bumble. Like, if it's more natural, that's where women are going to feel more comfortable, and that's where most of the women will be. And that's been my experience so far. I've been on a few of them the last few months. 
there seemed to be a ton of them on Bumble. Um, that's actually where I was building to. Is that uh, so? I created a profile and I didn't pay for the thing, which means you can't see who likes you. Um, the only way you can see who likes you is if you accidentally swiped right on somebody. If you both swipe right on each other, then you connect, but you can't know in advance who's who is uh, you know liked you, who swiped right on you. It just has to be like it has to happen. Um, but I went through the first uh, month or so. Just I was like, I don't know where I am in my life. I don't know what it is I want. So anybody who said they wanted a relationship, like, I'm, what are you looking for? I'm looking for a relationship. I was just like, swipe left. I'm not going to waste anyone's time, especially not anyone who said they wanted a relationship and children. It's like, no, both of the things are, I'm not going to waste anyone's time here. Um, so I basically swept, swept, I swiped through a lot of people just quickly, like relationship. No relationship. No. Um, and I realized like, I, I actually decided to pay for a subscription last week. And I realized that if you swipe right on those people and they've liked you, they disappear. Once you do it, they're gone. So. I was like, I think I actually got rid of a lot of people that I might've been interested in connecting with if I'd been where I am now. The thing is what, what's changed for me is I kind of look at it and I say, if I'm going to be on the dating apps looking for anything, it's not going to be any kind of hookup, nothing casual, you know? Um, if I'm going to like devote time and energy, it's going to be in a few places like I will date a few people like on a regular basis that I think might be worthwhile, that I enjoy being with, with the hopes that one of those would turn into something more substantial, whether marriage or whatever, I don't know at this point, but I'm not just having fun. I am looking for something. Um, so I decided to hit the reset button. Um, I was like, so... I'm just going to delete my account and then go back and recreate it. I'll add all the same exact photos. Um, basically just hit the reset button. So I did that. And when did I do that? I think I did that a couple days ago. It wasn't yesterday. Anyway, within, within 24 hours, I had like, I kind of like watched it here and there. And there were some that I could just, like Asian women, I don't have, I, I can't, I'm not interested in Asian women. I don't know why, but I don't find them attractive. And that's like 40% of San Francisco's population. So I can just swipe away them immediately as they come up. But within 24 hours, I had like maybe close to 100 women who swiped right on me and were interested in meeting me. And I, it just keeps building. It's built, it's been like 48 hours since I did this. So I, I just have this long list of profiles that I'm, I, I don't even know how to sort through them. There's no like filtering mechanism. And a lot of them look like wonderful people, but like I, I have my filters on. It says like only five miles away from my current location. 
like I'd like to stay within the city because getting around in the Bay Area is just a nightmare. But there are women who have swiped right on me who are like, like 20 or 30 miles away. Like they're over in the East Bay somewhere. Um, I, I saw one today. It was like a woman who was in San Sacramento, which is like 90 miles north of me. And that's, there's no good way of getting to Sacramento from where I am. That is just a slog of a drive, however you do it. I don't understand what the end game is there. What what exactly do they... Women in Santa Cruz? Santa Cruz is like at least 60 miles south. And again, not an easy drive. It's at least an hour and a half away. Like, what is the what is the desire here? What do you think is going to happen? You say you want a relationship and kids and you're looking for marriage. Are people just not reading where people live? Is it just... They see my face and they're like, yeah, that's good enough. Come on. I don't even know how useful this is. Like like I said, I can't filter them out. I have to go through them one by one and figure out, okay, where do you really live? And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I've just kind of reached the same conclusion that I reached way back in February, that all these dating apps are a waste of time. That you just basically devote time and energy into trying to get to know somebody that you have never met in the hopes that when you get a chance to meet them, that you will like them. The odds of that are so low. It, I, I don't understand why people do this. Even for hookup purposes. How can you know you want to bang somebody until you meet them? But really, who, how? From some pictures? Who does that? Anyway, my headphones are dying. And I just, I'm, of course, this has devolved into me talking about dating apps, which seems like as, it's as good a place as any to say sayonara. So anyway, um, I'm going to cut this off here. Uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Hope wherever you are, you're doing well. Hope, um, hope you're healthy. Another day above ground. It's a good day by me. I hope it's a good day by you. Um, yeah. Till next time, this is Jim signing off. Cheerio.